Well, this morning, if you have a copy of the scriptures, paper or digital, you can get those ready to go to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and a message that I want to talk to you about for just a couple minutes called Multiplication Complication. Multiplication Complication out of Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, I don't know if there's any uh, people in here who are really good at math. I, at one time in my life, thought that I was good at math. I'm like, I've got this thing down. Until about the fourth grade. And then math got really, really hard. They started putting letters in the math. Like, I, I still don't understand why the powers that be who oversee math as we know it decided that letters would be good in math. But apparently you need letters in math. And that's about the time that I didn't get so good, along with my English, I didn't get none done good at math. And so I I struggled with math. Okay, so I was just honest with you. Can you just be honest with me? Who else is in my boat? You understand, like, math is hard. Okay, the other day I was at a coffee shop just down the street uh, from here, and I was actually preparing this message to, to bring to you. And there was a group of students who were obviously taking a summer course at Washburn, and they were, they were struggling with a math problem. I could tell because it was the equation that takes up the whole page, and they were really into it. Like, their hair was all messy, and like they were, they were frustrated. I think one guy was pounding his fists at one point. And then I thought, I am so glad I'm not in school anymore. You know? But they were struggling with it. But as a group, they got together and they said, let's meet for coffee. Let's figure out this equation. Obviously, they have some sadistic professor who gave them this insane equation that they are wrestling over. And as a group, they are going to come up with the solution. Where we are in church history in Acts chapter 6. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, and he has given the disciples a mandate. Go into all the nations and preach the good news. What's the good news? The good news is that we are no longer lost in our sin, that we are not our own method of salvation, that Jesus took a cross that belonged to you and me, and then Jesus laid in a grave for three days, and on the third day he rose again from the grave. Jesus is alive, and they took that message, and they began reaching Jerusalem. Jesus said, go and wait in Jerusalem until you receive the gift of the Father. And in Acts chapter 2, we read how the Holy Spirit came upon them. And it's a great story. And then from there, that group of 12 uh, disciples who became the apostles of the church, the group of 12 became 120 in the upper room. And then 120 went to 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. And on and on it grew to 5,000. And who knows, but at this point in Acts chapter 6, it may be as much as 10,000. We don't really know. All we know is that things are going really good. If you look at the spreadsheet, the red arrow is going, or we'll go green arrow because there's a green arrow right behind me. If you look at the spreadsheet, the green arrow is going where it's supposed to go. It's going up and it's going to the right. It's a win. They're preaching. They're baptizing. People are getting healed. There's all kinds of things happening that are great. Win, 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 win. Even in the face of persecution. The church has faced persecution from the Romans and they faced persecution from the Jewish leaders. But even despite the persecution, when, 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 and where we are in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, we read about the first complication that makes its way into the church. That even though the church is growing, even though they're doing all the right things, even though they're following Jesus' words and they're following their mandate to go and preach, there's a loss. And I want to talk to you about conflict in the church. And could it be 
that if we go through multiplication, complication, it's just the way it is. As things grow, it gets a little bit more complicated. As things uh, take on a new nature, it requires more hands on deck to solve issues. And I really believe that if we look at a complication in the church, now I get it. I get it, okay? This church has zero complications. In a hundred years, you guys have never had an issue with fighting or, or division. And so this is like, okay, this is for you to take notes and give to your friend in their church when they face issues like this, okay? So you can say, well, I once heard it didn't apply to us, but this might be helpful to you. Acts chapter 6. So they fight complications in the church. But what they're going to do is they're going to face these complications with God-honoring solutions And the crazy part is multiplication of believers still happens. Even in the face of persecution, even in the face of complications in the church, the church is still growing. But why? Why is the church still growing when they're facing these kind of issues? Could it be that when we face issues in the local church, that it doesn't have to create division, it doesn't have to splinter off, that perhaps if we solve our our conflicts in a God-honoring way, the church will grow. That will grow, will be healthier for it. And so as we look at the text, we're going to pick this up in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It'll be on the screen there uh, behind me and behind you, believe it or not. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, in those days, the number of disciples was increasing. That's awesome. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, here's what I like about the early church. The early church and the apostles who are leading this see needs in their community. They see needs all around them, and they begin to meet those needs. So I want to talk to you for just a moment about see a need, meet a need. Okay, I encourage people at Mission Hill all the time to do this. When you see a need, when there is a need presented before you, you are now under a holy obligation to do something about that need. Even just last night, right before service started, we have a guy in our church who said, I don't know what's going on. My car, it just won't start. I... I don't know what I don't know what the deal is. And you know what? I, I don't know either. Like, if you want me to fix your car, you have picked the wrong guy. Like, I'll hand you tools and buy you a cup of coffee, but you don't want me fixing your car. But he gave me a need. He said, I have a need. Now, I don't have the means and the resources and the wisdom to fix it, but I had people in the room with the means and the resources to fix it. And I said, by the end of the night, we're going to get this thing going. And by the end of last night's service, we had his car, at least his situation, figure out to where he could get it fixed. When a need is presented before you, you are under holy obligation to meet that need as quick as you possibly can. Why? Because all throughout the scriptures, when Jesus is encouraging his disciples to take on the role of ministry and to take on, uh, you know, the work of the church, there's a proclamation of the gospel and a demonstration of the gospel. See, we, we too often want to live in the world of proclamation. We want to say Jesus is Lord, but then on the other side of that, we really don't do a ton tangibly about that. I'm not being, you know, trying to be indicting on Topeka First Assembly or our other churches or anything like that. I think we've done awesome things. I'm just saying that if we want to be a powerful, effective church in the city of Topeka and Shawnee County and Kansas and the United States of America, I mean, however big we want this umbrella to go, we must have a proclamation of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. There's salvation from sin. There's healing, hope, and help in the name of Jesus, a proclamation of the gospel. And then we follow that up with a demonstration of the gospel. Oh, your widows are hungry? We'll feed you. Oh, you're thirsty? We'll give you something to drink. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like anything that somebody else, maybe like Jesus, has said? 
So we, proc- we, we proclaim the gospel. There's a proclamation of the gospel and a demonstration of the gospel. I love the fact that the early church saw a need and they said, this is not right. It is not right that there are, are widows who are going hungry. You have to understand in first century Jewish culture, like it was the responsibility of the immediate family to take care of the widow in need. But if they had no family, many widows died of starvation. There was no state aid. There was no necessarily no soup kitchens. There was no charity work at that point. I mean, this is like the very beginning of all of that. And they said, it's not right that these widows are dying. So what we're going to do is we're going to feed them. But it's not just going to stop at that. We're not just going to give them something to eat or give them something to drink. At the same time, we're going to give them Jesus. And to me, those are the ministries I love to get behind. Those are the missions efforts I love to get behind, where we meet a tangible need. There are people in Africa who need water, but at the same time, they give them water. They give them the living water. We read out of John chapter 4 that Jesus himself will be the living water. If you come unto me and drink, you'll never thirst again. And so that's why we support the Africa Oasis Project, because there's a proclamation of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, here's a glass of fresh clean water. And we wonder why the church is growing in other nations. Proclamation, demonstration. Proclamation, demonstration. See a need and meet a need. But unfortunately, there's a complication that happens here. Whether directly or indirectly, intentional or unintentional, there were two groups of widows in the early church. There was the Hebrew widows, who were born and raised in the Holy Land. They looked right. They talked right. Hebrew was their native tongue. That was their temple language. They dressed right. They looked right. They had it down pat. They had the citizenship card to show that they were born and raised in Jerusalem. And then you have the Hellenistic widows who grew up outside of the city of Jerusalem, perhaps even outside of the nation of Israel, who were under Greek and Roman influence, and perhaps their dress was different. Predominantly, the biggest difference is their language. They would have... predominantly spoken Greek. And what we see in the early church, and this should make us feel a little bit better about ourselves, is that they dealt with racial issues and socioeconomic issues in the early church. And they had to work through that, just like in so many churches today. We still work through. We have to. We have to be able to look at divisions in the church and say, that is not okay. That is not okay. It's not until the full realization that in Jesus we are found and adopted into one family, not multiple families. We are adopted into one family of God. There's not division. Look, the ground is still level at the foot of the cross. You and I must come to Jesus. And then that full realization that you are my brother and sister, which is why we use lingo like that in and around church circles. We're not trying to be creepy. We're trying to state a reality that you are no longer a foreigner or a stranger. You are my brother. You are my sister. We may not look alike in appearance, but we have something in common, and that is Jesus. And that is Jesus. And so here's the deal. There is no such thing as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. There's no such thing as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. And that's what they're working through. That's the conflict they're going through. I like what Paul says, that when Jesus steps into a church, when this a healthy, life-giving, spirit-filled church, Jesus tears down the walls of barriers that bring division amongst us. Jesus tears down economic barriers, racial barriers, social barriers. He's tearing it all down. There's no such thing as male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. We are found as a family in Christ. It's pretty cool. And we wonder why the church grows. 
Because you're given an identity. I like what Pastor Chris prayed just a, a moment ago. Lord, help the, that was a prophetic prayer. Help those who struggle with identity distortion. And there's so much identity distortion in the kingdom of God. If we'll just come back to the realization that Jesus tears down the dividing walls and builds a healthy body. It's the body of Christ. Jesus is the head and we are the body. And so there's a complaint. There's a complaint in the church. Those who are national uh, Jews are, are getting fed and those who are not are being sent to the back of the bus, so to speak. And so what is the difference between a complaint and a suggestion? I don't know. I kind of toyed around with this idea. What is the difference between a complaint and a suggestion? I I think I've got it kind of narrowed down this way. A complaint is whining without a solution. I mean, simply put, a complaint is whining without a solution. But a suggestion is designed to spur growth and health. A suggestion says, I'm going to be part of the solution. I'm not going to just complain about something and then not be part of the solution for the complaint or part of the suggestion or the, the complaint or the suggestion, however you want to look at it. I want to be a part of it. Listen, this is a prayer that I've started praying a couple of years ago, and maybe perhaps you have felt a little bit embittered in the church. Maybe realistically you've been hurt. Maybe you feel like the Greek widows who have been overlooked in the distribution of food. And there's this tendency to want to complain and start to backbite and start to gossip. And let me just give you this. I am no longer willing to complain about anything that I'm not willing to be part of the solution for. I'm not going to complain about anything that I'm not willing to help fix. Lord, send someone over there. I'm going to pray, Lord, send me over there. I'm not going to say, Lord, you know, help them and bless them and encourage them without saying, Lord, use me to help them and bless them and encourage them. Look, complaints are going to happen. There's going to be fighting. There's going to be hurt feelings at some point. I get that. That's the reality of being imperfect people who serve a perfect Jesus. And you thought, oh, I thought that all this time I was sitting in a perfect church. Wrong. The fact that I'm up here ought to tell you this is an imperfect church. I have no business being up here but the Lord Jesus. And listen, true or false, complainers are drainers. It's just something about being around them. Look, Proverbs calls a gossip a scandal monger. Avoid, Avoid them. So perhaps a filtered question the Holy Spirit might want to run through your heart. Am I getting more upset about a personal preference or about a biblical principle? Am I more upset about a preference, the way I like to do things, the way I think things ought to be done? Or am I actually upset about a biblical principle? Because here in the text, in Acts chapter 6, they weren't necessarily arguing to a certain degree over theological issues. It was a practical ministry issue. Look, I've been in and around. I grew up. I, like, I was born on a Tuesday, quite literally was in church the following Sunday. Born and raised in church, served God all my life. It's been awesome. Thank you, Jesus. I've been involved in like hands-on ministry, whether that's a, a youth leader or a helper or children's church in some form or fashion for the last 20 years. I've been in full-time ministry now, coming up on seven years. I have seen people fight about just the weirdest stuff in church. And can I just say the weirdest stuff as in like non-eternal issues. And that's exactly what the enemy wants to do is sneak in on a non-eternal issue and create division in the church. And I'm just saying be on guard be on guard. And perhaps there's some in this room and that's you. 
that, that, that's you. you. You're the one who's been talking. And perhaps the Holy Spirit would remind you right now, you just need to stop. Or if it's really that big an issue, you need to go the Matthew 18 route. You need to go to that person who offended you and hurt you. And I don't want to belittle. Perhaps you have genuinely been hurt. That may be the case. You must go to that offending person. Jesus taught us in Matthew 18. You can go there for reference. Go to that person first. See if they'll hear you out. If they do, you'll have won them back as a brother. Go the Matthew 18 route if it's really that important. Because fighting in the church without resolution slows down the ministry and the effectiveness of the local church. It does. It just, I mean, it brings things to a grinding halt. I've seen it time and time again. And listen, if we want to be effective at reaching Topeka, reaching our Jerusalem for the name of Jesus and the glory of God, we've got to be able to circle the things that like just aren't right and either fix it for the glory of God or let it go for the glory of God. All right, we'll go back to Matthew, uh, or I'm sorry, back to uh, Acts chapter 6. Oh, let me just say this in passing, okay? Complaints are never, should never be dealt with in Facebook flogging, okay? You understand flogging, like what Jesus endured going to the cross? That is like not the way Jesus said to resolve your issues. I am so mad about this in the church, or I'm so mad at this other person, this other Christian. I tell you what, I'm, I'm going to take this to social media, and I'm going to tell them what, don't do that. Don't, don't be that one. Uh, but here, the rumors are starting to flow. People are starting to ask questions. There's backroom murmuring. There's meetings after the meeting going on where people are like, can you believe this is going on in the church? Uh, one other translation says there were rumblings of discontent and this gossip was going forward. So let me give you this. Psalm 141 verse 3. I love this. This is a great prayer. And maybe perhaps some of us need to pray this every day this week. Take control of what I say, O oh Lord, and guard my lips. Some of us need to pray that in a moment. Take control of what I say, O oh Lord, and guard my lips. So, there's a complication. There's a complaint. It's happening. It's real. The struggle is real. Complications are bound to happen, but we must come up with God-honoring solutions. Let's go to Acts chapter 6, verse 2 through 4. Something needs to be done. It's not right. And that's right. You call a spade a spade. This is not right. It ought not to be this way. So the 12 apostles, they gathered all the disciples together. They said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. That might sound harsh on the surface, but we'll visit that in just a moment. So here's the God-honoring solution. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Other translations also add uh, they have a good reputation. We'll turn this responsibility over to them. And we'll give our attention to prayer, and the ministry of the Word of God. It's not right for us to wait on tables. I mean, that sounds kind of harsh on the surface, right? How many in here have ever worked in, like, fast food or food service or some sort of service industry where you provide a product and then you deal with the weirdest people in return? And you've just, like, people get mad. Or, so for all the waiters and waitresses, former and current, can I just say, God bless you, extra God bless you for the fact that you waited on a table of 10 people and they didn't leave you a tip. God bless you for the, for the time you waited on, on two people and you felt like, oh, I didn't give them the attention I needed and they left you an awesome tip. God bless you. Now, what the disciples are not doing here, they're not being harsh. They're not saying that that's beneath us. Okay, I've seen that. Perhaps you've seen that in uh, your history of growing up in the church and being involved in the church. There's just some people 
um, I, I call them the HTTs, the holier than thou's. The people who say, that work, that ministry, that, that job, that's beneath me. That's beneath me. No, I've, put in, I've paid my dues. I've been there. I've done that. I deserve this position, this role, this leadership responsibility. And may I just say, in passing, in loving, as lovingly as I possibly can, as a pastor, if serving in any role is beneath you, then leading is beyond you. If serving in any particular role, you say, you know what, that's beneath me, that's not for me, then leadership is not for you. How do I know that? Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, just mere hours before going to the cross and being accused of crimes he didn't commit, and after dinner, he got down on his hands and knees and he took off his cloak and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he gave us a model for serving. And he began washing feet, the most humiliating job in that culture that nobody wanted to do. Like, you were like the new guy on the job and that was your job. You're washing dirty, stinking feet. And Jesus bends down and he washes feet. The king of glory who stepped out of the, the realms of heaven wrapped on skin, was born in a manger, lived in obscurity up until he was 30, then entered a life of public ministry, had an amazingly huge crowd following. He's feeding, healing, and blessing, and talking about the kingdom of God. And everybody loves him. And he could have been a king, a powerful king. He could have easily overthrow, overthrown Rome, but he chose the route of a cross. And he took the position of a slave, and he washed feet. When's the last time you washed some feet? That might be literal. That could be figurative. When is the last time you said, you know what, my job right now, I'm going to wash some feet. I'm going to serve perhaps where nobody else wants to serve. I'm going to take that because you know what, people matter to God. And when people matter to God, they matter to me. When people matter to God, they matter to the church, period. So when's the last time you wash some feet? You wash some feet. They're saying, look, we shouldn't be waiting on tables. All they're really trying to say is there's certain priorities that we have, and there's certain priorities in your life that you cannot compromise. You can't compromise your priorities. Essentially what they're saying is we should focus on our ministry, the ministry that Jesus gave us to feed his sheep, to lead this new thing called the church. We should focus where God has gifted us and built us to be, and we should turn the ministry responsibility of this area over to somebody else. Essentially, uh, if you want to think about it this way, what if, what if suppose like it was the job of the pastors to not only pray and preach the word, you know, the pastors here on staff, Pastor Steve, Pastor Hannah, Pastor Chris, uh, Pastor Jenna, you know, we expect them to preach and to bring God's word. We expect them to be in prayer. We expect them to disciple. We expect them to lead. We expect them to counsel. We expect them to mentor. And then on top of that, we're like, you know what? You need to paint that wall. Or we need you to pour new concrete out in the parking lot. Or, you know, we need you to go around and we need you to clean the building. Are these things bad? No. They're absolutely necessary. They are absolutely vital to what we do. I mean, when we gather, it's nice to have uh, good facilities and clean facilities. And uh, that's not bad. And I will say this for them. They would do it in a moment's notice. They would do it and love Jesus and serve and pray for you while they did it. But should they? Is that the most effective use of their time? Think about this, uh, perhaps in the, in the restaurant industry. We were just talking about wait staff and waitresses and whatnot. Would you want the accountant of the restaurant cooking your steak? No. Why? 
that lady's a number cruncher. You want her in the back room with big calculators, like turning things and punching numbers. That's what they need to be doing. That's where they're gifted to be. That's where they're designed to be. That's where they're built to be. You want the guy who knows what he's doing cooking steak. And there's a lot of guys in this room who think they know how to cook steak, and they're going to try and prove that tomorrow. And it's going to be, like, really chewy, so just brace yourselves. Because I'm one of them. I'm talking about being put where your strengths are, prioritizing what you were built to do. What has God built you to do? What, like, is a passion in your heart? What gets you, what, like, revs you up in the morning? What if you got paid, let's say you didn't even get paid. You're like, I would do this every day until the day I die and not collect a cent, and I would be so happy. What is it? Perhaps it's the ministry that God has designed you to do. All I'm saying is that we need to be in the right place, and when we're all serving, we'll all be served. When we're all leading and and working in the area that God has designed us to be, we're all going to be blessed because of it. So don't hold back. Whatever it is God has given you to do, when you see a need in the church, whether they need help in the children's ministry, you know what? I'm just saying, like, pray about it, not long, and then serve. Like, serve. It's a real need. Or there's a real need for clean facilities or whatever the case may be. I'm just, you know, spitballing here with you for a minute. When you see the need, meet the need as much as possible within your wisdom and abilities. See the need and meet the need. Peter and John easily could, with the other ten apostles, they could have easily tied on an apron, grabbed a big spoon, and got out there and started serving food. And you know what? They would have done it. But it's focusing on the priority. Focusing on what God designed them to do. And then turning over that ministry responsibility. They're not hoarding the ministry responsibility. Like, oh, it's all got to be done by us. And, you know, we're kind of a, you know, this is like the worst uh, phrase of all time. I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of kind of a marketing geek, so I'll just go with me on this, but uh, probably one of the worst phrases in marketing I've ever heard is, you're an army of one. And that is not true. We need each other. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that, look, the eye can't say to the nose, I don't need you. What if we were just a big eye walking around? That'd be weird. The hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Well, the hand wouldn't get very far, would it? We need each other. We need each other. Oh, listen, we need you with your God-given gifts and abilities to be a solution to a complication. To be a solution. Are you willing to be a solution to a complication in the church? So we shouldn't serve this ministry at the expense of that ministry. Basically, what I want to tell you is this. Don't allow good things to distract you from God things. There's a lot of good things that the pastoral staff can be doing, but you know what? It may be a distraction from the God things that are designed and built for them to do. So in your life, in your family, in this church, are you allowing good things to distract you from God things? Are you serving in the place that God has built you to be? Are you distracted? You know, we need to take those distractions and we need to delegate them out. That's what the disciples did here. The apostles did here. They found the God-honoring solution was to give this ministry away. Just like Jesus modeled for us. And so basically they said, here's the three criteria. They need a good reputation. One translation says they must have a good reputation. I mean, how do people talk about you? I'm not saying we should be overly concerned with, like, you know, our reputation and what are people saying about me. But just on a realistic level, how are you known? In and around maybe even this church. Let's just start there. In this church, how are you known? When your name comes up in conversation, how does that conversation go? Again, I'm not saying you need to be preoccupied with that. If you're serving Jesus and loving people, God's going to take care of your reputation. But how are you known? 
It says that they'll be full of the Spirit. They'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about uh, that we need to be, uh, don't get drunk on wine. He says this in Ephesians 5. Don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit continually, every day, filled with the Spirit of God, following the Spirit. In another scripture, Paul says, look, the Holy Spirit is moving. We need to keep in step with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always ahead of us. The question is, are we keeping up or are we standing still? If we walk in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. There they have a good reputation. They're full of the Spirit, and then they're full of wisdom. They just seem to have this knack for knowing how to fix things that go wrong. How many of you have somebody like that in your family? Like something breaks or something goes wrong, and they're just like level-headed, and they're cool about it, and they've already got it fixed and figured out. Those people are awesome. I'm not that person, but I love those people. But that's part of the criteria. I mean, this is literally the basic leadership uh, checklist for what's needed in the church of wisdom, good reputation, and full of the Spirit. They show a godly thought process to their life. And so, here's what they do. They say, alright, let's give this ministry away in verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. And his story gets really cool in Acts chapter 7. They also chose Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Paramens and Nicholas from Antioch. Uh, for those expecting children in the room, here's a great list of names that you might consider. <laughs> Nicholas from Antioch, a convert uh, to Judaism. They presented these men. Okay, the people collectively chose these guys. They said, these are the guys who we trust who can lead this ministry. And the cool part is some of these guys are Greek. They're not all Hebrew. It's a whole mix of guys who are going to lead this ministry. And they present them to the apostles, and the apostles do something awesome. They lay their hands on them and bless them and pray for them. This is a tradition that goes clear back to like Moses and Joshua, where Moses knows his time on earth is coming to an end and his leadership needs to be given away. So as an act of symbolic trust and the presence of God going with, he lays his hands on Joshua and says, take it and run with it. I love the fact that at Mission Hill, I have people who are, are designing ministry right now. We're getting ready to roll out this new ministry in a couple weeks. And when they approached me about it, two ladies in our church approached me about this ministry, I said, that is awesome. I've been praying for this. Literally, I put a hand on their shoulder and said, go and do this. Full blessing. I've got your back. Run with it. Let God bless it. It'll be awesome. I trust you. The apostles trusted these men to take this ministry and run with it. They could have held it for themselves but they did not hold it for themselves. They delegated away that kind of distraction. And so if we see a complication, we find a God-honoring solution. Here's where it gets kind of crazy. I really believe if we'll handle hurts and pains and frustrations, complications and complaints in the church with God-honoring solutions, I think we're going to see like what we see here in Acts chapter 6. We're going to see a God-honoring solution bring about multiplication in the church. We're going to see health and growth in the church. Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says this. They just went through this complication. They found a solution. And so the word of God spread. Other translations say it increased even more. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Other translations say multiplied. Look, I'm not great at math, but I get multiplication. Like the power of compound interest, right? You know, like multiplication. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. In Acts 6, verse 1, we started out the story with the disciples are growing. The church is growing. Things are going okay. And then we get into a complication and a solution. And look at this. This text is bookended in verse 1 and in verse 7 with growth. With growth. 
What if we've been approaching conflict in the church all wrong? What if we've been approaching it as I need to cut away and I need to separate or I need to get away from or I don't need to talk about? What if instead we find a God-honoring solution to the complications we face? And perhaps because of that, the world is watching. They'll watch us handle conflict and resolution and they'll see there's something to that. There's health to that. Think about it in the early church context. They're feeding widows, and a complication comes up, and the church grows even more. Well, if they could resolve that amongst themselves in their first fight, in their first internal conflict that we know of in the Scripture, if they did that, I want to be a part of that. I want to be on board with that. What would it look like in the church? I mean, there's division all over the place. Socially, racially economically, politically, there's division all over the place. Even politically within parties themselves, there's an insane amount of division. So what if the church, instead of seeing ourselves as an organization, we saw ourselves as an organism, a living being with Jesus as our head and us as the body and the breath that we breathe is the breath of the Spirit who's giving life to our bones giving life to our soul. Who would not want to be a part of that? In a chaotic world of division, they saw inclusion and blessing and health and lives transformed and healing and help taking place in the ministry of the local church. What if, what if we grabbed onto this and we said, you know what, we're going to face any complication in the church with a God-honoring solution and what if the world sees that and what if this church, I don't know, grows to 5,000 tomorrow? What would be your ministry role? What would God have you do? For those in the room who say, you know what, I've put in my dues. I've been there. I've done that. I'm kind of coasting now. Can I just encourage you? You are not done. God still has ministry for you. God still wants to change people's lives through you. God still wants to heal your family through you. Please, you are not done. Perhaps your greatest ministry years are still ahead of you. Don't give up. Don't give up on the church. Don't give up on people, even though people are going to hurt you. Look, all may fail, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. If we just handle our conflict with God-honoring solutions, perhaps we'll see multiplication in the process. There's going to be complications as we grow. There are things that need to be addressed. We get that. But are you going to be a part of the solution? Are you going to be a part of the growth? I think at some point you're just going to have to buckle your seatbelt and hold on because God is going to do incredible things. If we'll just go where he's going, if we'll keep up with the spirit where the spirit of the Lord is going. Let's pray, and I'm going to invite the band back up. And so, Lord, as we look at the first fight in the early church, as we look at racial tensions and social tensions that existed in the first church that might even exist in in our church, in our city, Lord, we want to recognize where barriers to growth are. We want to recognize where ministry must take place. Lord, I'm praying right now by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you are speaking to hearts and reminding people of their ministry role, the priority and the gifts that you have built into them to be a blessing to the church. Lord, would you this morning remind us again of why? why we're here. Lord, for those in this room who've been hurt and upset for real reasons, I pray you would bring healing and help from the body to bring restoration. For those in this room, Lord, who get angry about small stuff, I pray, Lord, for conviction and that they would become part of the solution 
a God-honoring solution so that the growth of the church can take place, so that it doesn't slow down the ministry efforts of this church, of this pastoral team. Lord, I pray that you would use every single person in this room to their fullest potential in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray.